Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Eminent Teachinology. Today is going to be another special episode where we are actually going to be replaying our first episode about racist technology. Uh, apologies, because I'm at the beach and we have not had a good chance to record, so that's why we're doing a rerun. <laughs> but uh, I hope you all like it. Uh, I think this was a really good episode, and I uh, also think a lot has changed with racist language and technology since we first recorded it at the beginning of this year. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit has changed. Uh, happy to see that most of the major Git providers have changed their uh, main branch naming to main instead of master, so that's good. Uh, that was something that was not happening when we first recorded this, uh, and I hope things continue to get better. Anyway, I uh, hope you all enjoy this, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to our very first episode of Eminent Teachnology. Uh, my name is Drew Stennett, and my co-host is uh, Dr. Rochelle Newton. Uh, we are co-workers, friends, uh, as you may have heard from our trailer if you listened, and we hope you did. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about language and technology, uh, specifically around the terms that we use, uh, many of which have, uh, I would call them, roots in not-so-nice things. And uh, we just want to have a conversation and sort of talk through uh, what we can do better as a technology, as technologists, and sort of what these what these words mean and how they got there and uh, yeah yeah so we hope that this is uh, important to folks. <laughs> if if you think about go back and think about the origination of what we know today as technology, so we'd have to start at DAPA and the Department of Defense and 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 higher education, specifically Berkeley and some of the others who were in the very throes of creating. Uh, the technology we know today. So mm -hmm. back then, I mean, you know, like it was really uh, male dominated, you know, industry, you know, so, um, and I would even say white male, but, but there were some black people there. Um, yeah. We saw yeah. in the movie Hidden Figures where black women were mathematicians and scientists who helped make NASA uh, space exploration possible. Yeah, actually, so, like, literally got people to the moon. <laughs> exactly. So when we think about these words, we have to remember that they're embedded in an original process that was not really meant for public view. You know, the Department of Defense or DARPA was looking for um, ways to, you know, get information to their, their, their troops and their bases and all of that stuff, you know, and, and so there was a lot of, of groundbreaking work that was done there. And they were really focusing on, you know, literally military uh, technology, not, not, not the consumer that you and I are and, 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 
And so Mm -hmm. you have to start there. And then you think about the university, the early universities that were a part of this this drive, you know, and um, many of you uh, hear the the noises of what it sounds like when you connect it to the internet, you hear this (laughs) noise, you know, but all of that was the early history of technology. And I don't think, and I don't know if this is correct or not, I don't think anyone gave much thought to how the language that was used back then would be felt many, many years later, right? So if we take the very first one, master and slave. Mm-hmm. So in America, and probably in other parts of the world, that had race and economic implications, right? So um, master, the person who is in charge and, and tells everybody what to do, and slave, yeah. the person that does the bidding of the master. Yeah. Well, technology, sort of the same way, but... Drew. Yes. <laughs> so when we end up, uh, and this is something that I'm honestly, like I'd use these terms, uh, not thinking about the history really at all with them until probably uh, a year, year and a half ago. But uh, we would, we would and still do name servers like master server 01, slave server 02, slave server 03. And it wasn't until recently, I think that uh, people really started changing that because like you mentioned, the technology world back then was a lot of white men. And I would say even today is still a lot of white men speaking as a white man. (laughs) And uh, I don't think that there is ill intent behind those things. I think they were just words that people use, didn't really think much of it because they didn't need to think much of it. And they've just stuck in our, they've gotten stuck in our documentation and our mind and everything. And it's been really hard to, to get them out. Like uh, even newer technologies like uh, Git, which is, I guess it's been around like 15 or 20 years now. So it's not super new, but it's, it's new enough. It defaults to using uh, a branch called master. And it's really like, it's hard to get that out of there and people don't, and it takes effort. And I think that's one of the big things is, all right, I'm going to start a new piece of Git code. Boom. I am immediately in a branch that is called master. Why does it need to be master? it doesn't need to be master. Like it should, it should be something else. Like that's <laughs> an obvious easy fix, but that fix, you know, it, it takes work and it takes people, it takes people actually being knowledgeable enough or caring enough to say, Hey, we shouldn't be using this because we don't need, I, I mean, I guess. And that's a good question for you is like, what, if you got a piece of code and saw that, you know, the main bit of it is called master, like what does that, what does that make you feel? Or it doesn't make you feel anything. I mean, I, for me, and I may be an exception because I'm old. So I grew mm-hmm. up in the rural South. I grew up very poor, you know, and so der- derogatory terms were used all the time. And I wasn't allowed the luxury of feeling the emotion that I really felt. So if someone called me the N-word, I wasn't Mm -hmm. allowed to feel the actual sting of that word because I had no power. You know, I had no no power. So so when I came into technology or computing was in the late 70s, so 1977. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
those words were there. So, you know, we had languages like COBOL and Fortran and Assembler and all these things way before we got C++ and Python and whatever else, you know, these are languages. And so we were writing code to tie the master and the slave. So the, in our, in that time, the master was the mainframe and the slave was the DASD or the data, the data storage. Mm -hmm. So that was what the master and slave relation was. So the, the, data source could only operate under the pretenses or the instructions of the, the CPU, the, the mainframe, right? So you had these yeah. two things that were there. So it was almost, you know, transparent, right? Because they were yeah. so so linked together, you know? And so when you came into the in industry, it was that way. So it wasn't like something you sat back and think, wow, I can't believe how racist that is. You didn't even give a thought about it, you know? Yeah. But as you move further away from the original foundations of technology, you know, you do stop and wonder, you know, so when you mentioned Git, like, so why did we choose that word? Is it the original definition? So going back to slavery or going back to uh, traditions that we we're used to, right? So mm -hmm. if you took, for example, our workforce, so we work for a manager or a director or somebody, right? Yep. So yep. Are, is that a master slave relationship? So when you think about that in the most plain sense, technology is just borrowing from our way of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can't, uh, you know, I can't speak to why exactly they named it master, but I assume it was more of like the master copy of the code or like, the, right. I would almost call it like it was their equivalent of the gold standard. Like it's the, it's the top of the food chain, not what they would consider, you know, the bottom of the food chain, which saying that out loud makes me feel like it's even worse of a word <laughs> than when we started this. Um, one thing that I've been trying to do, at least with all of our code, and, you know, when you have like hundreds of repositories, it's, it's definitely not uh, super easy, but just going through and changing any reference from master to main, like it's an easy fix. It takes effort, but it's not... You know, it's not bad. Um, one of the other reasons I sort of like, or that I do like this conversation is uh, even if the master-slave terminology isn't giving people uh, bad feelings, it at least brings it up as a topic for people to think about. Like uh, for my first, you know, 20 years in technology, it, I just didn't think about it. It was like master-slave, master-slave, master-slave. You know, nothing but being able to have this conversation with people you know i think that's i won't say it's as, as important as changing the term but i think it's good to just get people talking and you know have people you know we're having the conversation now <laughs> and spreading it that way yeah and i think if you, you you think back to you know i don't think it's going to be simple to change the language of technology. I mean, like, you mm -hmm. know, going forward, we're aware now. So when whoever the next big technology developer is, they'll, they'll start thinking about this as a part of our conversation and probably other yeah. conversations around this. But if you think about code, and, I, and I'll just tell you about my experience. So I started off doing assembler F and assembler H. And if you don't know what that is, it was probably the hardest code ever to write. I mean, like, oh, yeah. it literally, so like if you went for the number I mean, you went for a code and you did FF, like that's 255, you know? So like yeah. translating that from 
basic codes. All you want to do is be able to produce a sales report or you want to generate a, a, you know, a merchandise report or whatever it is. Translating that language really meant a complete rewrite of code that you couldn't just do, you know, make, a, make it on the fly. Oh, yeah, uh, Cobol, yeah. Cobol made it a little simpler. And, and one of the things I've always held on to is like people always say, why don't you have a computer science or a technology degree? And I've always said, because I didn't see the value of it, because once we got into the 80s, technology was just copy and paste. You just you wrote <laughs> a line or two of code. It wasn't like you were creating anything new. And so when you look at where we are now with, with all these new emerging technologies, they are different, but literally they're the same things we did you know, in the 70s. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's not like you really need to know. I think that in theory and in practice, it's important to have uh, technology and, 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 and computer science degrees. But if you're working in the trenches, you need yeah. to understand, you know, that, you know, you can go somewhere and find some code, copy that code, <laughs> change a few words in that code, and you get the same thing that you would have done if you wrote the code from scratch, right? Oh, yeah, so absolutely. So I don't think it's, it's as difficult to change unless it's in embedded code, right? So, uh, and I'll give you my example. So mm -hmm. IBM mainframe computers where I started my career. I was a punch card operator, so I've started out. Um, and it was really amazing to me that change, like, so it, it, many people may not know what a punch card is, a little beige card <laughs> with a bunch of zeros, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And it was just going all the way, all kind of different across and down. And so, the trays were massive. I'd say they were probably six foot trays and there were probably 10, 11,000 cards in there. You're probably giving some folks PTSD out there remembering how to carry all those things across the room. And guess what happens if you drop it? Oh <laughs> my word. And, and, yeah. and I will tell you, I was a little woman, so I used to drop it all the time. And so getting that code back in the sequence of those punched cards was absolutely essential to getting the outcome that they needed. So you send it back through the reader, the reader kicks it out, you know, and then eventually you get you get the, the punch card uh, tray in order. But that was not simple, it took time. So when we think about, you know, changing the language that exists in um, a lot of these, these rudimentary, rudimentary ways of technology, is, is really means that we have to look at it going forward, not necessarily going back. We're not going to undo master and slave between the server and the, and the, and the storage or one of the uh, other pieces. That is done. So what we have to do is we're thinking about, you know, so as you write your next uh, Kubernetes program or you, you create your next uh, container, you know, mm -hmm. that when you create that container, you don't allow that kind of language to exist. So you could go from main to um, sub or you know yeah. whatever the right thing is so the top and then you have layers underneath it so I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why it's important to think forward as opposed to going back because like if you if you looked at DARPA technology from um, and uh, Department of Offense I don't remember what DARPA stands for right off the top of my head but but it was something in the department Department of of Defense. But, um, but if you look at DARPA code, they weren't writing it literally based yeah. on race or being offensive. They were writing it based on, so that if you saw the word master, you know yeah. that you said the gold standard, right? This is the place where you're, you're starting from and you're working there. And then yeah. the slave in that 
term means that you are subservient to the master. That's yep. all it meant in the truest sense of the code. That's all it said is that this this device or this application was subservient to the master. Now, yeah. could we have used different language? Absolutely, but we didn't. And so yeah. <laughs> that old code, you know, if you were to go back, you know, probably doesn't exist anymore, but if you were to go back, it would be very hard to change that because so many things depended on that. And I'll give you one example. So you remember, you're old enough to remember uh, what people thought was going to happen when uh, the clock changed from 1999 to 2000. Oh yeah, yeah, it's an old Y2K bug. Right, right. People were fearful, you know, that, you know, the world was going to come to a screeching halt because there was yeah. so much code. And, and during the last three or four years before we got to Y2K, people were rewriting code, you know, feverishly. They were yeah. working on, and 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 then even what they did, they weren't sure it was going to work. Oh, so yeah. I think that when you look at those kinds of uh, thought processes uh, today, we think forward. Uh, we can't think about, okay, well, you know, that's the way it is because, and I think Y2K is a really good example of that, you know, changing code to make sure that when the clock hit a number, it was mm-hmm. not, you know, a, a, a nine, a four, or whatever it is, that the world was going to come to a screeching halt. Yeah, airplanes were going to fall out of the sky. Is what, uh, <laughs> what we. I remember, you know, seriously thinking that, like, is it going to turn midnight and just like, you know, if the house is going to catch on fire, airplanes are going to fall out of the sky, the bank accounts are going to be zeroed out. Like, oh, beats me. Absolutely. So what do you think about another sort of loaded set of terms are the blacklist and whitelist, which generally mean what we've been trying to switch out our terminology over to on that is safe list and block list. But why do you think it is that blacklist always has to mean something bad and whitelist always has to mean uh, something good? Like, I would like to think that that's not rooted in race, but people are pretty awful as well. <laughs> So I was curious what what you thought about that. I think that's one of the examples that you can't just explain away so so easily as we can master and slave. You know, the people yeah. who thought about that were they were working on the the fundamental thought that master and slave in the plantation word or the slavery word was applicable to how they saw how technology would work. So you know, the master code or the master or piece of hardware would enslave the the subservient so it would work you know uh cohesively i think yeah. words like blacklist and, and and i'll tell you my thought about this so why is it and i think there are only three or four instances where black is considered positive right so you got black mm-hmm. fraud, whatever that is i don't know <laughs> black fraud you yeah. got being in the black you know so you, you, you've got that it means your company is not bleeding blood so not red uh yeah know, so it wasn't like it was a, a white uh, bloody, it was just a red blood. So you're black or red, right? So there was that, you know, yeah. so I think that when you have terms like that, I think they truly were rated, weighted in racism, right? Because yeah. everything that we perceive, like I, I was having this conversation yesterday with somebody. So what is the all American boy or girl? Or what is the all American family? Now, most people think about that and they don't even give a thought to it, right? But yeah. literally that means it's a white person in a very nice neighborhood who has not had any transgressions and has lived yeah. this kind of life that's the all-american boy or the like a norman, norman rockwell painting of exactly. white america <laughs> right that's so it's never assumed to be a black or a brown person now you extrapolate from that the american dream 
what mm-hmm. is the American dream, right? So if you go back to the 60s, the 50s, 40s, it meant having, you know, a certain amount of wealth, right? So you, you bought a house, you got a car, you know, all, mm-hmm. all these, so you had this thing. So there's an American dream. That dream was never proposed for black and brown communities. It was really for white Americans. So yeah. you may not be familiar with this, but like in, in, uh, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, this builder built, when the GI soldiers came home uh, from World War One, started building these little cookie, uh, cookie cutter neighborhoods. Oh, you yeah. know, and then they built, for lack of a better word, ghettos in, in, in urban places, right? So you have like yeah. Chicago and New York, you have all of these, you know, tall buildings with chains and all this stuff right there. So that was intentional. That was not, you know, you know, some kind of haphazard thing, you know, so we had redlining, you know, so if a black person moved into a predominantly white, the, you know, either they did everything to pre- prevent it or mm-hmm. they moved white flight. So that was the new term. So if they Is could- that- what I'm, I'm redlining it in something I've heard of before is that uh, like red marking line. someone's name out of the list? Like redlining was a, a federal law that allowed realtors to prevent black and brown people from moving into communities. Um, I, I'm gonna send you a, a book uh, that might happen. Um, uh, it's it's uh, called The Color of Law, and mm-hmm. it's showing how um, law really the federal government and legal entities made it justifiable to prevent black and brown people from moving in certain communities. How they did this was federal backing, you know, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like if you think about reconstruction and all these other things, you know, you start out on a really good foot and somehow or another, some legislative bureau came up and said, okay, well, we're not going to allow black people to vote. We're not going to allow women to vote. So yeah. we're going to do all these things. But, but redlining was really one of those really egregious things. And it still happens today. And with algorithms and all these other things that are oh, dictating yeah. us, so if you take a neighborhood that is high crime, poverty, you know, all that stuff, an algorithm is going to put the value for what you can and cannot get in that neighborhood at a higher risk rate than it yeah. was if you were in, you know, a suburban, you know, middle-class or upper middle-class white neighborhood, because, you know, they're, they're, you're looking at the risk versus the uh, people and the conditions. So black listing and white listing are one of those things that really highlight the differences in how we see value of people and things, right? So a yeah. blacklist means you are kicked out, kicked off to the sur- to the side, you're not allowed, you can't come in, you know, and we're going to whitelist you, we're going to let you come in. You yeah. know? So, you know, if you're on a website and we've whitelisted it, you can come and do whatever you want. But if you're on a site, we've blacklisted it. Nope, <laughs> you, can't, you can't work. You can't get here, right? And so oh. I think that terms like that really become, you know, and I think I'll go back and say what I said earlier, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of criticism for this, but it almost becomes natural. You know, like no yeah. one thinks there's anything wrong with it when they create these terms or think about it. It's not like somebody yeah. was sitting there saying, well, let's, let's alienate all the black people we know, or all the brown right. people we know. It's just, we know that black is bad. We know right. that everything that we in a society have been told is if it's black, it's yeah. bad. With the exception of three or four you know, phrases, but for the most part, if it's black, it's bad. Yeah. So we, you can, you can, you can, you can transfer that to almost any place, not just technology. You can look at mass incarcerations. You can look at crack versus um, methamphetamine, I believe that's the call, whatever mm-hmm. the uh, drug. So crack oh, yeah. was a criminal enterprise and meth is 
an addict or a mental health issue. It's a whole yeah, national thing. crisis is what they're right. called. Yeah, opioids and all that stuff. Yeah, literally, it's the same thing, you know. So, um, I, I may have mentioned this to you, but if you watch uh, the early days of President Nixon, mm-hmm. uh, he was a study in contrast, right? So, um, there's uh, so I'm sure you know from history, he had recorded probably the last three or four years of his presidency before he resigned, you know, recorded yeah. every conversation that was had. And there's one place where he and Alderman are having a conversation and Alderman is describing Mexicans in Mexico. These are yeah. good, hardworking people. You know, they're, they're, they're good people. They have a, a real high moral code, but Mexican Americans were thieves and robbers and, you know, all everything you could think wrong with it. And then Nixon says in, in that same thing which is well at least they don't live like the negroes because they live like dogs you know so it's one yeah. of those things where you can see the intentionality of terms like blacklist and whitelist yeah uh, i won't get into how awful i think uh, a lot of politicians are but uh one interesting thing when you started talking about algorithms and i think this is a interesting from a white person versus black perspective is as soon as he said uh algorithms like talking about uh you know racism my mind went to i really wish netflix would get their algorithm right so it just didn't show me like white movies all the time and then when you went into like uh well like black people can't get houses because of the algorithm like it's a very it's a very stark contrast between uh the worldview that I've been able to have versus the one that you've been able to have. And it's a, that's another very eye-opening thing to me. Yeah. And and I think that it should be clear, you know, um, and I think we've talked about this um, before, um, but like, for example, if you take um, the, um, the algorithm of job search, right. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I want to, I want to get a job. And uh, I am going to apply for a job at a big organization. Um, And so my name is um, um, Diante Jones. That's my name. I'm Diante Jones. I went to a historically black college and I got Mm -hmm. a humanities degree and I I live in a high-risk zip code. And so now I'm going to go into an ATS, an application tracking system, especially in large organizations, right? So they get thousands of applicants anyway for any job that they post. But now my name, my my address, my my education is subpar in a lot of ways in these ATS systems because I didn't go to an Ivy League. Um, I don't live in a suburban area. And my name may be hard for some people to pronounce. So, you know, this algorithm is going to go and look. And so I think I may have told you this at one of the all all things open talks I did a couple of years ago, a black guy stood up in the back of one of my talks and he said, the way I've gotten around ATS is he says, I copied the entire job description and pasted it at the end of my (laughs) resume. I thought it's brilliant. I said, that's absolutely brilliant because you would get past, right? Because you got all the keywords in there. But yes. ATSs are, are, are smart to that now. They're catching on. So the algorithms are catching those kinds of things. So when you think about algorithms and the people that write them, so um, we do Google's facial recognition software. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, 
Google stepped out there in the biometric world and said, we're going to do facial recognition, you know, and, and put it in place. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful idea. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant idea. But the problem is those who created the code for facial recognition were yeah. white yeah. and mostly male. I don't know yeah. if they were female or what. So their first release, whenever it saw someone. So, for example, if you and I had gone in, it would have you, white male. They would have found you and said, OK, yes, this is a white male. But what, for me, it would have seen a gorilla. Now, that is pretty painful. And, yeah. and knowing Google, we knew we know that Google did not do that intentionally. That right. would be bad for their business. They, they didn't right. do that intentionally. But we are so comfortable with who we believe are smart enough, capable enough, you know, you know committed enough, hardworking, whatever yeah. it is, to say, let's put these group of people in the room and let them drive the, the, the car, you know, let yeah. them create the technology. So Algorithms yeah. are one of those things where we really, really need to understand, um, you know, equality and diversity. Because, yeah. you know, if, if you're creating the arg- algorithm based on where I live. So what if my mother bought that house in the 50s or the 40s and mm-hmm. the neighborhood went down, you know, so white flight or whatever it is. And they went, it was, was besieged by crack or whatever it is. Yep. So you're going to punish me for living at this address because of what has happened around me environmentally, which I may have may or may not have had any control over. Right. So I am now then subject to a different kind of racism. So not that you aren't going to pay me or hire me, but you are going to punish me for living in this area. And yeah. that's the kind of thing that I think that is really uh, interesting about um algorithms in, in a way that is really uh, something we need to understand and think about as yeah. we consider these emerging technologies. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I wanted to ask you about. So like when I grew up as sort of, I guess, a kid of the 80s and 90s, we were always told like, don't use the term black, like don't call someone black, say African-American. And like, as a kid who, you know, just don't, I really just don't want to offend anybody. Like, I just want to say whatever the right thing is, that's fine with me. But sort of that whole, like, what came out of that for me was like, I'm just not going to talk about it. Like, I'm not going to mention anything with race. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, should, you know, why do we, why do we have to mention a color when talking about somebody? And then, I don't know, like, what's the right way to make people, because African-American always just doesn't feel quite right. And I think that that's fallen out of uh, flavor at this point, since, you know, most black people now are, I I don't think would consider themselves as being from Africa, but I was curious what your thoughts were on that sort of whole, like, should we even be having the conversation about that or what, what does it matter? And what, what is the respectful thing to say? So I I will, um, just take you back to my childhood. So as you mm-hmm. know, I grew up in South Carolina, rural, poor. And um, we. so I, I was born in 1958. So mm-hmm. we had not made our transition to where we are now or where we're headed. You know, so um, in the part of South Carolina where I grew up, people were either very, very dark or white. There yeah. were very people who were fair skinned, which is what I'm classified in. And so... Mm-hmm. The black people hated me because of my skin color. And so, you know, there was that, which I had no control over. Yeah. And 
you know, the, the little small town, they'd have a little, um, I guess, a little store out there, you know, a, a, a kind of, a, you know, mom and pop little store. And there would be a set of white men sitting on the, the chairs out there. If you ever go to Cracker Barrel, kind of give mm-hmm. you that that's sitting out in front of the store, right? And they're chewing tobacco yeah. and spitting, you know. And, and, and a black person walks by, a black man. They call him boy. Boy, you sure you you ain't stealing nothing, are you, boy? You know, yeah. and uh, so you had that term, which which minimized grown men to boys, right? Yeah. And then black women were more in that, that, that period of rape and all that stuff. So we were never yeah. seen as women the way that white women were so um you know we were routinely called the n-word and spelt n-i-g-g-e-r that's what we call you know and so as the civil rights movement rolled forward you know we came up with i am a man so may not but there Mm -hmm. were lots of talk about black people walking around with these signs on that said i am a man Mm -hmm. you know and then you go to the point where you're trying to define who you are so we went from the the word that ended in er to negro yeah. so yeah. we chose the term negro now many whites still made that a terrible word to be a negro and i think yeah. i told you this how i got in computers i had been accepted to a college up north and as i was walking across the campus the gentleman there you know white man said mm-hmm. we are trying to bring negroes into computing <laughs> so yeah. You know, okay, well, here's a new word I'd never heard of. <laughs> but then he called me a Negro as opposed to the other word, right? So I was yeah. like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to accept that as whatever that is. So, yeah. you know, I think that people have been struggling to find the correct word. So we call Asian Americans, you know, we've mm-hmm. had uh, Hispanic Americans, you know, I think they are rethinking their terms. So there's Latinx now. Yeah. I personally am a Black. I don't consider myself uh, African-American. I don't consider myself mm-hmm. a person of color. I am a black woman. Yeah. And I feel very comfortable with that. If you yeah. and I would have a conversation, you would ask me about, um, you, you'd ask me, say, what is it like to be a black woman? But if you ask yeah. me what is it like to be a person of color, I'd struggle because I don't know what that is. You know, so that is so encompassing. It's, you know, er, you are a person of color, you know, so that's, that's yeah. one of those big terms. So um, you have minorities. So whatever yeah. that means, so that's going back to that master slave kind of thing. So you've got that, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you've got African-Americans. So, um, and I'll, I'll just give you my, my, my one thought about that. So I could not go to Africa and say, I'm from there, or these right. are my people. Um, I am a, a ancestor of a black person who was brought to America for economic mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah. And Everything about me descends from that. So yeah. if I do my DNA, I am 30 or 40% white. And then I'm 60% a whole bunch of other things, right? Yeah. So I've got the Native American in me. I've got some, you know, Africans in me. So I've got all this stuff in me. Yeah. So who am I? And that's one of those things that I think that we as Black people are beginning to have as a conversation. So... Yeah. Um, there is a uh, song Beyonce has on her 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 um, Blackest King a uh, Disney Disney special, and they mm-hmm. and they talk specifically about that. Like, I don't know what my native language is. You know, I don't know where I came from. You know, yeah. I have a name that was given to me. So most of the Africans did not have last names; they just had whatever 
name their tribe gave them, right? So I was yeah. given, so a lot of people call this your government name. So my government name is Newton. You know, this is the yeah. name the government gave me. Yeah. So yeah. I think that your question is a very valid question, but I think it's so complicated and so um, complex that I'm not so sure we, we can wrap our arms around it. There are a lot of uh, theologians, black theologians who, who speak about this subject a lot and, mm-hmm. and have positions. I just don't think that there's unif- uniformity among black and brown people about what they are. So like if you, when you think of Hispanic, what do you think of, you know? So many of us think of Mexico, yeah. uh, but there are yeah. tons of other places where that's a term and there's a division, it used to be a division between Hispanic and Latin, right? So Latino yeah. mean you came from Spain, one of those wonderful uh, countries that they welcomed into America heartily. Whereas if you came from Mexico or, you know, wherever yeah. that you were something else, you know? And so race, specifically race terms are really complicated. I don't yeah. think you shy away from it at all. I think you should have those uncomfortable conversations to understand how people feel. So you may talk to someone, you may go to work, you know, next mm-hmm. week or something and, and, and have lunch or something with one of your black or brown colleagues. And they'll tell you something altogether different because it's, it's such a, a thing to be yeah. identified by a term like that. So you don't walk around saying, I'm a white American. You walk right. around saying, I'm Drew Stennett. You know, you right. know, whatever are the other terms that are, are out there, you don't classify yourself as that. And the assumption is that you're a white American, yeah. but that's not a term that you use to describe yourself. You know, when you when you somebody says, hey, I'll meet you in the airport. Uh, what do you look like? I'm a white American. Right. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I mean, right. I, I'm five foot such tall. I've got on a green shirt, you know, whatever it is. You know, so what for us, we have to have some kind of label attached to us. Because it means something to somebody, and it's not necessarily us. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like you have to specify that you're not the the default, like in quotation marks. Like it's not. Yeah, yeah. This uh, as we're wrapping up here, we're, we've been trying to keep this to thirty minutes, and we're already over. But uh, <laughs> it's all great information. Uh, one thing that I really uh, appreciate appreciate about you, Rochelle, is uh, like if someone would ask me like two years ago, like, "Hey, Drew, do you know in like two years you're going to be talking about uh, race with someone that is like." you know, not in your direct family, I would have been like, uh-uh, no way. That's never going to happen. Like, I just want to keep my mouth shut. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put my neck out there and possibly say something wrong. And uh, uh, because of, I think because of our friendship mainly, it's, uh, I feel like I've been given a real opportunity to uh, have these conversations with you. And they're always very, uh, very uh, eye-opening and mind-blowing so I, I just wanted to say I appreciate that about you <laughs> well, and I, I think I appreciate that right back to you because you're willing to have the conversations and I think that if you are genuine in having conversations with black or brown people I mean like if you're not trying to hurt them or malign them or something I think they will have these conversations with you every day wholeheartedly yeah. you know because yeah. you know you said we we're wrapping up so I won't go deep into this but I'll just say slavery didn't end because black people you know went through the uh the underground railroad or because we slavery in because ended because white people saw the scourge of slavery as something terrible on the u.s um yeah 
pattern, you know, on, on what we thought it meant to be an American. And so that's how it ended. And I think that the way, and if you go back to that slave time, if you think about the people, who, the white people who engaged and, 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 and fought to make this end, you know, they understood that there was something wrong. They may not have known everything, but they understood. And I think in yeah. our case, you know, and I would say this is probably true for most black and brown people, that those original abolitionists and all those people had to engage in uncomfortable conversations in order to get to the place where they understood enough how to fight for yeah. the rights of all humans versus, you know, defining somebody as black or whatever it is. Yeah. We still have a long way to go. But if we are going to make it to parity, where your children and my children are just boys and girls or yeah. whatever their sexual orientation is, if, if that's all they have to worry about, we're yeah. on our way to a great society. But yeah. if we have to, well, Drew, are you really going to let your black daughter go over there, your white daughter go over there to that black guy's house? I mean, no. you know, he, he's probably going to rape her or, you know, if, if, if yeah. that's the context of the conversation, we're, we're really, you know, miles yeah. away from equality. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's a good, uh, a good first podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to us. And uh, we really appreciate you out there. And uh, especially thank you to you, Rochelle. Uh, as always, every conversation we have, uh, I learned like 30 new things. And this conversation was no different. <laughs> it goes right back. I learn stuff from you all the time. I, I just want to ask you all, if you enjoyed listening to us, subscribe to our podcast, provide feedback, and let us know what you you want to talk about, how you think these conversations should go. Because if we're missing the mark here, because we're looking at this through our own lens, we'd like to know yeah. what, what what's what's on your mind. So please subscribe and provide feedback. Yes. And Drew and I next week. Yes. Thank you all very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to Eminent Teachnology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon. Thank you for listening to Eminent Teachnology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon.